Good morning to you all. You get me not only two weeks in a row, you're going to get me next Sunday too. Clara went, said, yippee, yippee. Last Sunday when I, when I finished, I said, ah, I, th- I was supposed to teach this week. I said, I think I need two more weeks. And I hope that um, this intro, as it sort of is, will also be more than just an intro, uh, but something that will be uh, helpful for life for you. Um, we started a, a new series last week called The Good and Beautiful Life. And uh, we began that, or I began that, by reflecting first on the value and importance that humankind puts on the desire for and the pursuit of happiness. And I suggested that, that maybe above everything else, and, and maybe at some level, even as the force for our life in its entirety, uh, human beings desire to be happy. I mean, wait, that is not the right sermon by any means. So we need to find the right one because I've got a really cute picture of my grandson on there when it talks about. So I'm going to have to move forward. You're going to, he'll get there sometime. Anyway, one I looked over there. It's under the sermon. Uh, yeah, anyway, he'll have to do that because uh, they'll figure it out. They're smart people. Anyway, so happiness, picture, something that makes you happy. Picture something that just brings a smile to your face. We like that. We, we like that. We all want to be happy. Thank you very much, team. Appreciate it. Um, and as a result, predominantly, I think to a great degree, we as people try and do just about anything to get it. The trouble is, is that many of the trails that we have been led to in this world to go down in pursuit of happiness rather than leading to happiness, they lead to what I described last week as a ruined life. Uh, Very often, not only our own, but others that we drag down with us. And this was true even in the lives of Adam and Eve, as I very often uh, lead us to consider going back to the beginning. It's the way I tell my stories. Once upon a time, I was born, and then it goes on from there. Well, once upon a time, there was a man and woman who lived in a perfect world. Uh, As I suggested, free from all evil, free from sickness, disease, no food shortages, no pollution, no hatred, violence, war, or death. They had everything they needed or could imagine wanting. Real honestly, everything that we strive for and think would be the best thing to have, they had it including an unhindered relationship with God. If we as humans, if anybody as a human were ever to be happy, it it would have been Adam and Eve. But we all know the rest of the story. Something happened. Along came a spider who sat down beside her. Or wait a minute, I think it was a serpent. Anyway, and he whispered in her ear, you know, there's something you don't have that you really need to be happy. And when they looked at their world, they now saw it quite differently. Huh. God hadn't given them everything they needed, they thought. God was, in fact, 
depriving them of something good, something they needed to be happy. How in the world can we trust God who would withhold such a thing from us? And so they resolved if they were going to get what they really wanted in life, they were going to have to take it for themselves. They were going to have to look out for numero uno. And they were going to need to be in charge of their own lives. And is that not what humankind and each of us have done ever since? Questioning if God, through his command, not in fact withholding something good that we believe we need to make us happy. And as a result, we take life into our own hands to secure for ourselves what we need and want. Because who else is going to do it? Not God. The trouble is, that choice to take charge, to pursue our own happiness, doesn't usually end very well. As we reflected last week, as we looked at Romans chapter 1, as a description of the path to the ruined life. And this week, like Harvey, Paul Harvey used to say, I want to tell you the rest of the story. But before we head there, let's pray. If you know who Paul Harvey is, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, forget it. It's okay. You're too young. Papa, thank you that that was not the end of the story. Thank you that you, out of your great kindness and love, and, and really a desperate love, chased us down, offering to us an alternative because the truly good and beautiful life is the life that's connected with you, being led by you, experiencing who you are, relationship with you, finding and experiencing your love, loving you back and loving others. That's what we've been created for. But we struggle with that. We, we struggle to get there. We, we're so bombarded with pictures and images and thoughts and ideas and advertising that just sort of tantalize us. God, I confess, I, I, I'm, I'm drawn away. And I, I desperately need your help to come into the fullness of this good and beautiful life that you have for me and that you want for each one of us. So help us. Help us this morning, Papa. Help us hear you. Holy Spirit, teach and guide us today. You are the teacher. You are the one who can reveal and will reveal all truth. Come and reveal truth to us. We need you to do that. In Jesus' name. So, I grew up in Los Angeles. My dear friend Eddie was wearing Los Angeles Lakers. There was a time when I was a Lakers fan. I am no longer, though. I am converted. Um, but my mother was an avid baseball player. Baseball player. Wah! She was an avid baseball watcher. Fan. Fan. Thank you. Fan that. And... Um, Occasionally, we had the privilege as little kids to go to Dodger Stadium uh, with her. And Sandy Koufax, if you know, if there anybody, can anybody know that name? We got one, two, three, four. What? Really? How do you know that name? Well, your dad. There you go. Well, Sandy Koufax, did we already cover him up? Oh, well. Can you kind of hit back arrow? And I think it will, I don't know that you can get it to stop. One more? I don't know. Anyway, that's not me, by the way. It's cute, though. All right, look at that. This guy was, at the time, the fastest, through the fastest pitch per miles an hour of anybody. And he was, 
He was crazy to look at. His, his leg, I mean, that's, I don't know if they all did it back then. Do they still throw pitches that way? He was left-handed, for one. Southpaw, they call that. And his, his leg, his right leg, would come up to his chest. Now, I don't have, that picture's not there, but it would come up to his chest. Threw himself forward. And then he practically was halfway to the plate by the time he let go of the ball. I mean, I can't fathom the guy was able to pitch more than two or three games without killing himself. Anyway, I liked going and seeing that. But the Dodger dog was really the treat. And then I'll never forget the hawkers. Claire didn't even know what that word was, so I had the teacher last night. A hawker is somebody who's selling something, right? And hawkers are the people who walk up and down the aisles at the Spurs game. And at Dodger Stadium was concrete stairs, and there were millions of them, I think. I mean, you know, each deck, there were 18,000 decks, I think. And, you know, then there was outfield, and those were like two miles high. Anyway, not really. Dodger Stadium actually is one of the smaller stadiums, I think, comparatively. But anyway, pop! Corn, peanuts, cotton candy, get your ice cold Coke. Anybody heard something like that? They're awful quiet in the Spurs. If you notice that, you don't hear these guys. In the Dodger Stadium, you can hear them down in the lower deck. Yelling back up, beep, popcorn, peanuts. Anyway, so hold that picture in your mind. Okay, got that? And now if you would, picture Jesus walking along the sandy shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he walks up to a group of fishermen and he says, Guys, I have an incredible news for you. The life you and your friends have always dreamed of, it's here. I can take you to it. Just, just turn away from that, come with me, and, and you'll experience the life you've always dreamed of. I picture Jesus being like a hawker, Right? And when he walked throughout the land, that's what it was like. Everywhere he went, Jesus called out, Hey, everybody, the time has come. New life is here. It's right here. Come and get it. It's free. And the Bible tells us they came in droves. They came by the thousands. This was really good news, and everybody knew it. Mark describes it this way. Jesus and his disciples withdrew. They were so tired. They were so kind of, you know, day in, day out, all these crowds, that that they decided to go off to have a personal retreat together. And so they said, you know, let's go down to the coast. We can kind of get away from these people. But Mark says, but huge crowds trailed after them from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, across the Jordan, and as far as Tyre and Sidon. Swarms of people who had heard the reports about him and had come to see for themselves. Does that sound like kind of good news? Does that sound like somebody saying, there is something out there and I want to go check it out because I think I need that. You see, when, when Jesus said, repent, The kingdom of God is at hand. The people heard the life you've always dreamed of has arrived. Come and get it. That's what they heard. We don't hear that though. You know, the message of the Bible about Jesus, 
about this good and beautiful life is really good news. The trouble is that the message has often been presented and it sounds more like, you wicked, evil people, God's going to get you. He's going to send you to hell. Now, can you agree with me that that does not sound like good news? Now, okay, so we don't hear that a lot these days, but I think that message echoes in our society and our culture. And I would like to suggest that, that some of our understanding, some of the narratives that we have about God, about salvation, about eternal life, about being a follower of Jesus, the kingdom of God, church and even hell, those narratives are askew. They're off. And as a result, people, even us, are being hindered from experiencing this good and beautiful life that God has created us for. And at the same level, sadly and tragically, we're hindering others from finding and experiencing it as well. Last week I talked about the the path to the ruined life, I called it. Romans chapter 1, if you weren't with us, you can go back there. And actually, we're doing, Benjamin's doing real good with having the stuff up online. That one's not yet, but the weeks before that were. We're going to try and keep this series. If you miss one, uh, we put it on the website. Uh, it's on our website. You need a password and a code, which is hope, hope. You all can have it. It's okay. Hope is username. Hope is password. Everybody say hope, hope. Okay, how do you log in to get the sermons? I hope so. Okay, anyway. This week, last week was the path to the ruined life. I told you I was going to, and here's the rest of the story. So the title for this week is The Path to the Restored Life. Oh, look at that. Wrong, wrong title. Title is The Path to the Restored Life. Ruined life, restored life. Okay, now, if, if I could, without being too repetitious, I, I'd like to restate, summarize uh, our problem and our predicament, you might say. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve accepted a lie. A lie was tantalized out there. It looked tasty. They took it. They were hooked. And they accepted the lie, this false narrative, into their minds. God was depriving them of something good, something they needed to be happy, and God could no longer be trusted. And that narrative then brought about action or lifestyle that said and did, if they were going to get what they really wanted in life, they were going to have to take it for themselves. They were going to have to look out for numero uno and be in charge of their own lives. And I languaged that last week in a couple of different phrases. The first being, wanting what I want when I want it. Wanting what I want when I want it. And then secondly, something that I... I personally am really relating to and is, is being helpful to me is wanting the world to be the way I want it. And I gave you illustrations of that from my own life, of, of how I live that out every day uh, of my life. Even this week, I tell you, I was in traffic. I'm doing so much better, friends. P- keep praying for me, though. Uh, I, I actually, I left my laptop in Austin Friday. I needed to present a sermon I had some work that I had on there. I was, 
I drive home. Claire and I talk. I pick her up at the airport. Not the airport. The, anyway, so I had to drive to Austin and back yesterday morning. It was good. I was able to listen to some teaching material. It was helpful. But I have to say, I knew I had so many hours to prepare this talk. And I did obey the speed limit, but occasionally somebody was in front of me, and, you know, they weren't obeying the speed limit because the speed limit is, was 70, and they weren't doing 70. They were doing 65. The speed limit, friends, is 70 going up to Austin. Hello? I didn't hit anybody, though, nor did I curse. I am learning. Claire and I are working on blessing instead of cursing. There's, I, I read that somewhere. I'm not sure where. But anyway, it's a good idea. You might try it. Anyway, okay. Wanting the world to be as I want it. Yep, birds, I do that every day. All right. When we make a choice to disregard living or doing things that God says is best, and we choose instead to make a choice for living or doing things the way I want, the way I think is best, we are taking a step down the road that leads to the ruined life. Right? That's what we suggested last week. That's our predicament. That's the problem that we're facing. When Jesus says or said, repent, the kingdom of God is here, he was not saying, feel bad about your sin. And we'll get there. What Jesus was saying was he was inviting us to a party. Hey, everybody, look at this. Come over here. Change the course. Move from the path you're going towards living and doing the way God says is best. And when we do that, we're now taking a step down the road that leads to a restored life. And I say restored because that life is the life for which we and every human being was created. Every human being. Clara, what's the phrase you're saying? When Clara sees a person, she has this, this challenge of we have observations that we make. We have narratives in our head. We see different kinds of people. And God has asked her to say, this person is made in my image. And I don't want to be separated from them for all eternity. We're, we're practicing that narrative, seeing if we can exchange that narrative for the narratives that she and I have when we see certain kinds of people. Because that life, that beautiful life, God created every human being. I see homeless people all over Austin every day. They sleep in the courtyard of our building. They urinate and poop in our back. Uh, courtyard, my workers have to go clean that up every single day, and I'm confident they're not saying that person was created in the image of God, and God doesn't want to spend any eternity from them. But I'm working on that for them. You can pray with me about that. I said earlier that I believe that it's possible that some of our understanding, some of the narratives we have are askew. And as a result, they're hindering us from experiencing the good and beautiful life that God wants for us. That's our predicament. So I'd like to consider some of these words, some of these themes this morning. Not a lot of them, because I'm going to do some more next week. So don't, 
Everybody take a deep breath. I think we're good. I don't think this is going to be one of my longest ones. Uh, Hang with me. Stay with me if you could. The first word uh, that I want us to look at and consider, we've already touched on, and that is the word repent, which is a verb, and the word repentance, which is a noun. And the typical or general meaning that Christians give to this word is to be sorry, particularly sorrow or remorse for sin. Do you agree with me that, with that, that, that that's kind of a flavor of that word? Typically, people say, uh, well, I need to repent and I need to, I need to be sorry about my sin. But that's not what that word means. And, and here in this church... If you've been here a year, you've heard us tell you that that's not what that word means. (laughs) The Greek words here are metanoia, the verb for repent, and metanoeo. Anybody want to try saying that with me? Metanoeo. I had to play it on my computer. Metanoeo. I had to listen to it so I could say it back to you. Anyway, um, and it means repentance. So that's the the, uh, noun form. And they have the meaning of primarily changing one's mind or thinking differently, changing one's opinions, feelings, or purpose. And as such, it includes this idea, which is what I've mostly suggested, that of changing course or reversing one's direction or turning around. And going the other way. That's what I have historically in this church. I have suggested repentance is. Stop going this way. And start going the other way. And and that is probably very much within. Now in order to do that. We need to change our thinking. We need to have some vision of doing that. Why? What's the benefit? Why in the world would I change my course. Unless there's some benefit for changing. So. There's some things, but so it's about our mind, but then it's about action. It, it, it is not just a mental assent, repent. It literally means if you change your mind about um, canned spinach, whatever it was that you had, like me as a little kid, I couldn't stand canned spinach, which is why they had the Popeye movies, you know, because they want kids to get grow big and strong. And so here, eat spinach because Popeye does. It was horrible. Canned spinach. Anybody like it here? Come on, confess. Anyone? We got one. We got two. Two, two. Do I hear three? Three, three, four. Bless you. Bless you. You can have every can out of my house. But if I were to change my opinion about spinach, what would I do? Canned spinach. I would take action, which would be to what? I want to eat it. I don't, oh, wow, I really love spinach. I never eat it, but man, do I love canned spinach, right? So anyway, okay. This word, I'm confident, can incorporate that idea of being sorry for your sin or to feel bad that Jesus had to die because of your sin, but that's not what Jesus meant When he said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was engaging the course of our lives. If as a result of my choice to live the way I think is best, 
I am on the road to a ruined life. There's a bridge out ahead and I'm headed for destruction or worse, eternal separation from God. Jesus is being quite emphatic about telling us to change our course. Look out for that car. Watch out, that baseball's going to hit you. Sorry. Right? That's, that's Jesus' heart. Look out. Watch out. Don't go that way. That's the word repent. You're going to hurt yourself or others. And really, you're going to be a whole lot better off. Does that make sense? So what does the word repent mean in the Bible? Let's celebrate this one. I like this one. All those were good too. Uh, Change your mind and change course. Repent. Change your mind and change your course. All right. New narrative, if you'd like to put it in there, or a reminder of a narrative if you've already got it. Next word, convert and conversion. Uh, these words are, are regularly used in the Christian faith. Um, I'm here to tell you, though, that the word convert is not in the New Testament. The word conversion is used once, and it refers to the idea of Gentiles converting to the Jewish faith. So the concept that is in the New Testament of a Jew becoming a Christian or coming out of a nominal Christian faith and becoming a Muslim can be imagined to be a relevant idea. But the reality is that, that the Jews, Jesus and the disciples, and in the early church, they were not converting from Judaism to Christianity, as, as we think of that word. They were Jews who were fulfilled because the Messiah had come. They were fulfilled Jews. They were, did not convert. Yeah, I won't go down there. I was heading down a path that's not in my notes, and I don't think that would have been a good one. So, do you remember what it was when Jesus saw these men, Philip, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, do you remember what he said? It was not repent. It was not be converted. It was not you need to be saved. He said, follow me. Wow. Now that word's in the Bible. Jesus said it. It's in red. The stuff in red's usually more important. Well, it's not more, but you know, it's really important. Friends, most of us have not converted. We've been raised in a Christian culture to a great degree, particularly those of us over 50. Was much more so when we were growing up, but um even those who have grown up outside of the church in their ears typically are not converting. I mean, someone who's of a Muslim faith 
coming to Christ, here's where I was going to go, could almost be a fulfilled Muslim. The greatest prophet of all. Now, if that wigs you out, throw it out, no problem. But we know a young man. Remind me his name. Ayub. As far as I can tell, he considers himself a Muslim and a Christian. He's from Turkey. He came to the States. He got saved. And he attends his mosque, and he has Muslim friends, and does Muslim things, and he comes to our, was coming to our church till he moved because of his Ph.D. program. And he stood up here one Sunday on, on 9-11 and prayed with me, next to me. Freaked out some people. I understand. I can get that. I really do. I'm sorry for those I freaked out. But as far as I can tell, time, I spent quite a bit of time with him. And, and he, had a, a, he may have had a better understanding of who Jesus is and what his requirements as a follower of Jesus were than many Christians. Anyway, I went there. Sorry. You can cut that out of the tape. We don't have tapes. All right, never mind. All right. The idea of conversion or converting from one religion to the another does have its roots in Judaism. Uh, it, it is, it's seen in the Old Testament converting from other gods to the, the God, Gentiles coming to salvation, coming to faith, faith. See, I'm switching all the words now. Ge- uh, Gentiles coming and becoming a part of the Jewish uh, family. Okay, but it's not in the New Testament. It's, it's not what we do. It's not what we could, should invite people to do. Come and everybody would like to be converted this morning to canned spinach. Come on up for prayer. We'll pray for you so you can be converted. I won't, I promise. Maybe the ones of you who like it should come up and we'll pray for you to be converted. But anyway, that's your problem, not mine. Okay. All right. Kevin, just look. Just do this to me. It'll be all right. All right. Um, the next words, and these are the last ones we're going to cover today. I may be done in 10 minutes, so we're doing great. Everybody likes that. Everybody say, yay, we're going to be done early. All right. Um, the next words are really important words, and they're in the Bible. They're in the New Testament. They're used quite a bit. And they are the words saved, salvation, and eternal life. Um, But I would like to encourage you to possibly rethink, possibly repent about your understanding of those words. (laughs) Change your mind about them as we talk about them. Uh, Probably the most famous passage uh, we think of when we think about salvation is what? John 3.16. It's near the beginning of John, right? starts with the words. Should not, would not, may not, one Greek word. Cool verse, right? Talks about eternal life. We use it all the time. It's a great verse. Did you ever notice that it says world and not people? Humankind, the word is cosmos, it's world. Anyway, you can work on that one. I was this week. All right. The next verse goes on to speak of, of being saved. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn, and the word there means to put the world on trial. I thought that was cool. But through him, 
through his trial to save the world. Jesus did not come to put the world on trial, but he was put on trial, condemned, and died in our place. I think that's kind of cool. Anyway, two words here or phrase uh, are used in John by Jesus. The first is eternal life. The other is to save. Let's look at eternal life first. Eternal life, we said, is a very, very common phrase used in the church, used by Christians, used by me, used by us. And typically we mean and understand um, by that the idea of living with God eternally, right? Sounds right. Eternal life, living with God eternally. Okay, that's cool. The two words that we translate life forever is, is not always... What's meant by this word? And the even more unique thing is about this is that there's only one definition of the Bible. And they're from Jesus and they're in red. And Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3. And he says, this is eternal life. That people would know you. He's in his, his pastoral uh, prayer uh, with God at the end of the book. It's, it's the night before the crucifixion. He's with the disciples and he's praying to the Father on our behalf. And he says, now this is eternal life that people would know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if that's the definition that Jesus says of eternal... Okay, I, I'm with me. The words mean life forever. Eternal life. They, they, those are... That's what they mean. But if let's insert, if we could, for just a minute, the definition that Jesus gave. Let's try that on. Okay? It's up here. For, and read it with me, if you would. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you have sent. You could memorize it that way if you wanted, and you would be correct. That's what Jesus meant by eternal life. We need a little tweaking. Yes, it does mean eternal life. It does. I'm not trying to suggest it doesn't. There is life in heaven someday. But that idea has misled us. That true understanding has misled many to reflect that eternal life is not now, but it is someday. Right? Pie in the sky on the day that I die. How many people have ever heard that before? Got about five of you. Yeah. I don't know where it's in the 60s. I th- no, it's been before that because God died in the 60s. Anyway... <laughs> Um, he, he resurrected. Yes, he did. God, God came back to life. Amazing. Um, I was saying something. I lo- completely lost it. All right. So um, we've been misled. The, the, the correct understanding of the words eternal life have misled many to miss the eternal life that God intends for us to experience now. And we, we, we live in this realm of, I got saved, and I'm waiting till I die, till I can experience eternal life. 
Friends, that is the mindset out there. It may have been yours at one time. It was mine, somewhat. Now, here's, here's, here's a thought I have for you. When we share our faith, very often we will attempt to talk to people about eternal life, heaven, sin, and of course hell. But according to this definition of eternal life given to us by Jesus, we really ought to talk to people about knowing God and knowing Jesus. I heard a Christian speaker recently suggest when talking to those who aren't following God to ask them what they think about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? And I think we could generate a similar uh, response by asking what they think about God. Maybe that one will be more negative. What do you think about God? Oh, he's terrible. He's, oh, I don't believe in there's God. Well, that's all right. But those two questions... What's really cool is most people don't like to be told what to think or believe. Ever notice that one? Doesn't fit the world the way they want it, right? But people really like sharing their opinions, right? So you're sitting on an airplane and you pop the question, are you going to heaven? And they look at you and they change seats. Have you been washed in the blood? <laughs> Leave the plane. Where's the parachute? You know, I've been I've been wrestling. I've got some friends, and what do you, what do you think about Jesus? This, what do you think about Jesus? And you know, I don't know. Gosh, life is hard, isn't it? I, I I've experienced some really. What do you think about God? They won't leave the plane, and they may interact with you. And if you have any sense of leading from the Holy Spirit, that some, you know, they sit down and they, they, they pop open, I don't know what, you know, and there's just a ding, God's here for you. God's here. God, what do you want me to say? We're going to be working on that idea of, of outward here. Uh, head towards the summer and stuff. But anyway, that was all free. Um, I would encourage you, uh, when you think about interacting with those who are not followers of Christ, don't talk about conversion or repentance. Uh, Maybe not even eternal life or salvation, at least not initially. Please get there someday, sometime, but it's not really the best place to start, I think. If, If they want to know what you think, if, if they happen to come back, well, what do, you, what do you think about Jesus? If they happen to do that, you could tell them very briefly, very experientially, not theologically, who God and Jesus are to you. And if you have really genuinely listened to them and been, yeah, wow, that's really, how, where'd you get that? They may want to hear yours. Does that sound like maybe a good idea? Yeah, I'm going to try it. I don't think I've ever tried that one. I just got that yesterday. All right. Do you know Jesus used this one? Do you remember he asked, he asked some people, who do people say that I am? 
And, and then he asked Peter, well, and who do you think I am? So, hey, if Jesus used it, we can use it. Who do you think Jesus is? All right. Very truthfully, hang with me on this one. What someone believes and thinks about Jesus is the absolute most important thing they can believe or think. Because what people believe and think about Jesus, not about eternal life, not even about hell, not about conversion, what they believe about Jesus is going to determine their eternal destiny. A Muslim does not have to convert to Christianity to get saved and go to heaven. They do not. They need to know Jesus is the Savior and he's the Son of God. And that will change, require repentance, a change of mind. Don't get me saying that we don't. I mean, you guys, hang with me. Just if, if you, Don't put this on the Internet, please. This one's not going out there. Thank you. Anyway. Who are the lepers of our current society? That's true. Depends on who you are. Who, who are a couple, who are some of the lepers of our current American society? Homeless? Mentally ill? AIDS. Jesus, homosexuals, Jesus um, had a leper walk up to him. Leprosy at that time was uncurable. And um, in the Jewish tradition, lepers were required to stay away. Uh, lepers had to go away, not come. And this leper, like those crowds, had this disease, had heard about Jesus, and he says to Jesus, I, you know, if, if you would, you, you could heal me, but I'm sure you wouldn't. Can't you hear that? Can't you imagine that? How long has this person lived this way? What did Jesus say? I will. And I don't think, it says he touched him. But I don't think he touched him like a hot stove. I think Jesus hugged him like this. And I think in that moment of embrace, the untouchable was healed. And I was thinking about this week, maybe it was two weeks ago. I talked about it with Priscilla. I don't know I could do that with an AIDS baby. And I'm working on repenting. It's my story. I can't see my notes. <laughs> okay, who do people say that I am? Yada, yada, yada. Okay. We talked about eternal life. But the uh, words to be saved and salvation were introduced there in John 3.17. Almost done. And the word there um, is the word sozo. And not too long ago, we had a training workshop uh, over a weekend where we were taught 
uh, about sozo as a, a model of healing that um, some Christians have put together and a friend of ours is, is using as a tool for uh, all kinds of healing and, and to a great degree inner healing. So that's the Greek word here. And to get at its meaning, I want to look at two verses where it's used. And I am the English translated word. I'm going to say the word sozo when it is present. So you can just get that, all right? We're just going to say the word sozo instead of the translated word. So the first story is the story of Jesus. He's in the boat with his disciples. Um, Terrible storm crashes down on them. Uh, Jesus is asleep in the boat. How do you sleep through a storm that's sinking your boat? Anyway, he was. He was either so exhausted from the crowds or so at peace, and I suspect probably both. (laughs) So what did the disciples do? Jesus! Sozo us! We're going to die! Sozo. You want to get the soap out? Sozo us? Okay. What does the word in that context mean? Save? How about rescue? Deliver? I'm slipping. Help? Okay, next story. This one is the story of the woman. Um, she has had some type of uterine cancer or something, fibrous tumor. Um, She has, in the text, it says, a condition of hemorrhaging for 12 years. And in the Jewish culture, bless their little hearts and their understandings, a, a woman, when she is on her menstrual cycle, is unclean and cannot come. She has to go just like the leper. And this woman has had this condition now for 12 years. Any sense of rejection going on, you think? Any other challenges besides that she's spent all her money on this? She ran out of insurance and she has nothing else to go and do? Okay, anyway, just thought. She comes up to him in a crowd. She's violating the law. She should be going, not coming. And the woman said to herself, if I could only touch his cloak, I would be sozo. If I could just touch his cloak, I would be sozo. What's it mean there? Healed, made whole, restored, not have to be an outcast anymore. a powerful word she was not thinking oh gosh I can get eternal life if I touch his cloak I'm so excited friends that was not what she was thinking she did not need to be saved although yeah she needed to be saved from her condition but let's be frank she needed to be healed of her condition next one's the story of a blind man I love this story. We have it in one of our children's books that we used to read with our kids, and I yell, and so I'm going to turn this off, okay?
side of the road, blind, can't walk right. He sat there probably for years or decades. The blind and the lame all had places in town and outside of town where they sat. And he starts yelling, Jesus! Immediately he was healed and he joined the crowd of disciples and he followed Jesus into town. What's the meaning of this word here? Healed, made well, whole, complete. It's not clear if he had once seen. Some of the translations say regain sight, but as I looked at the word, that's, it's, it's, it's not clear. It's possible that, that he had once seen. and now, But it's irrelevant. He couldn't see. And so it was restored or was stored, whatever. Anyway. All right. Now, let's go to the last one I'm going to reflect on. There are lots of these. I just wanted to kind of make an emphasis and kind of make a point. The last one is in the book of Acts. Apostle Paul is speaking with uh, Jewish leaders. Um, no, that can't be. Paul, this Peter, excuse me, wrong. Chapter 4 of Acts would not be Paul. Uh, chapter 4 of Acts, uh, Peter is speaking to Jewish leaders, and he says, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. There is salvation, soteria, not sozo. There is salvation, soteria, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be sozo. So here, like the first one with the disciples, is the aspect of saving, to be saved. The traditional meaning of this word. But notice it's linked to another word that's also translated salvation, but is the word soteria. So what does that word mean? If we've got sozo and soteria in the same, why is he using, if both are salva- if one's salvation and one is to be saved, you'd think they'd be a root word. They'd be connected. They're not. And the word soteria, best translated, deliver or rescue. So here, sozo, the word sozo that we translate, healed, made whole, complete, is linked with the word that means rescued, delivered. Again, yes, referencing this aspect of salvation. And here's what I'd like to say about this word. 
Most of us, when we hear the idea, Jesus saves, we think of Jesus saving us from eternal separation from God or being saved from the punishment of hell for our sin. And it has that meaning. But again, that meaning pushes off any kind of application or meaning from this life to that one. And friends, these people, those disciples and these Bartimaeus and these ladies were not trying to get a hold of eternal life and, and um, being saved from hell. And Jesus did not mean when he used that word. And the New Testament writers were not only talking about something future that is going to happen someday. There's a, um, a broader meaning than just save that would include these aspects of healing, wholeness, restoration, freedom from sin. Not just forgiveness or being saved from, but actually being transformed, changed. That's salvation. I, I was taught years ago in, in biblical training that the word salvation, when you look at it or saved, it's very clearly there's aspects in which we can talk about the fact that we were saved at the point of Christ's death and resurrection. That salvation for us was wrought at that moment, a historical event. But scriptures are very clear that we are also being saved and probably even the Plutonic, perfect, whatever that stuff is that I never remembered in Greek, um, be being saved. Be being, ongoingly being saved. And it's really clear that salvation also has this aspect of eternal life. So again, I'm looking for some tweaking of our narratives in our minds that whenever we think about using the word, are you saved, or however else we might use it, that this is not just that one element of the future or the past. We were saved when Jesus died on the cross. Yep, we were. We will be saved when we're with him eternally in heaven. Yep, we will. But we are be being saved right now. And God intends that. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. Yeah, eternal life. He did. Super abundant life right now. That is the good and beautiful life that God sent his son that we would experience. There's a, another word that I use a lot. It's my famous word, David. Teleos. It's used a lot in the New Testament. It means wholeness and completeness. It is the outcome of the life, the new life of God in Christ. And I would parallel that to this understanding of salvation. When Adam and Eve made that choice to turn from God, the condition of death came upon the earth. But as we all know, that condition was not instantaneous. 
At that point, humankind and the world became broken and susceptible to sickness, disease, and of course, death. Being saved then is not just something for after we die, but it is something that is to initiate a healing, amending, a restoration of body, soul, and mind, even before heaven. Every time someone was healed through the ministry of Jesus, the power of sin and death was broken and overruled by the power of sozo. And it was a demonstration of what life, real life, the good and beautiful life that every human being was designed for was supposed to be like. Text after text, and he healed them all, and he healed them all. He preached the kingdom, he taught, and he healed the sick. That was salvation. All of it. The good and beautiful life is a restored life. A life restored in thought, mind, body, will, and action. A life restored in relationship with God. A life restored in our relationship to our own view of ourselves. And a life restored in relationship with the people and the world around us. And the world is dying to hear the good news about it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I love you. Papa, I love you so much. Jesus, you are awesome. And you're all here with us today. Cheering, celebrating, and hawking. (laughs) Calling out to us Come this way. Oh my gosh, you won't believe it. It is incredible. Come on. Leave that stuff alone. Come on, come with me. Follow me. Papa, we're here today, and we need Sozo today. We thank you for salvation on the cross. We are excited and looking forward to eternal life in heaven. But we need Sozo right now. And some people are here are tormented. They're being badgered by demons. Some people are tormented by shame and guilt. Some are addicted, afflicted. Some have bodies that have stopped performing correctly. Or are elements and aspects of their body are are not doing what they're supposed to be doing or they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. We need sozo. We need salvation 
healing and mending. And we need our minds changed. We need to be, uh, have our minds, our thinking changed so that we can live in, that we can walk into this good and beautiful life. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are the healer. You are the deliverer. You are the teacher. Come. Come right now as spirit in power. Let your power, God, let your empowering presence come. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would live the kind of life that we long to live and that you long for us to live. Come. Come, fill us. Fill every person in this room with your power and presence. This story and this show and this building is all about you. It's about what we think about you and what actions we take. Phil, I just, would everyone just, just stand quietly with your, your eyes closed if you're comfortable lifting your hands and raising them? There was a beautiful song during worship. I guess they all were beautiful, but anyway, one of them. Remember which one? Just glorious. Benjamin, can you find that song on the iPod fairly fast? I just, um, we, we believe and, and are, have experienced the aspect of healing coming as a result of the touch of another human being being empowered with the gifts of healing. Uh, but I, I sense this morning uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to heal and sozo you himself. And I would just encourage you, you can hum this song, you can reflect on it, you can think about it. If you need sozo this morning, deliverance, healing, transformation of mind or heart or healing of body, just welcome Him to do it. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with His power and presence right now. Turn up a little bit. A little more.
reign here today, O God. Rule and reign. Let your manifest presence come. Have your way in our hearts. Your will be done today, God, in us, through us. Your will be done, not our will. Your way upon the earth. Let it be so today as we leave this week. As we go out into the marketplace, as we go into, back to our homes and our neighborhoods and the gas stations, Lord, you have empowered us to be your mouthpieces, your ambassadors, to bring the good news about God's life. Let us take this message of good news and bring it to a broken, ruining, ruined world. Oh, God, be glorified today. Thank you for this chance to reflect on you and our thinking about who you are. Might we be transformed and changed more and more each day to being like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have a great day. Have a great week. Tell somebody about Jesus or ask somebody this week. If you ask somebody this week, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Or God, if that comes up, text me or email me something, would you? I'd like to hear about it. Thank you. God bless.